Let's find our seats. Thank you for being here this morning. For those of you that don't know me, my name is uh, Christian Moscoso, and I, too, am one of the pastor elders here at Trinity. And uh, it is my joy to welcome you. Before we jump into the message, I would like to let you know that Rick does not go to bed at 9 a.m. Uh, he would like you to know that uh, he meant 9 p.m. So, Will he fall asleep during the sermon? We'll see. But, uh, but usually he doesn't go to bed at 9 a.m. Just kidding. Uh, anyways, uh, like I said, my name is Christian and it is my joy to share the word this morning. And uh, so let's do it. We have a lot to cover this morning, so let's just jump to it. Now, if you are new to Trinity, you may not be familiar with the way that we do things here, but here at Trinity, we like to preach through books of the Bible. This is what we call expository preaching. What we do is that we take entire books of the Bible and we read from beginning to the end and we preach through them. We do this so that we do not just pick and choose our favorite verses or our favorite topics. And um, currently, we're going through the books of First and Second Samuel. Uh, last week, Mike Tylan did a phenomenal job walking us through the chapter uh, through chapter 14 of 2 Samuel. So today we will continue our series in verse in chapter 15. Now, up until this point, we have been in a section of the story that is honestly brutal. In the last few chapters, we have seen how comfort and idle, idleness led David the king to sin, and how uh, that directly affected not only his family but his entire nation. We've seen today, or we've seen in the last few weeks, how, how David's sin has brought about betrayal. It brought about sexual abuse, revenge, conspiracy, and a lot of other terrible things in the life of his family. If you're not familiar with his story, I would invite you to go home and read the books of Samuel, First and Second Samuel. And if you also have time, I'd encourage you to go and listen to the, service, uh, to the sermons of the previous weeks so that you may fully understand what's going on in, on our text today. I unfortunately did not have the time to catch you up in detail, uh, but just for context, you need to know that in the last two chapters, one of David's son, his name is Absalom, murdered his brother, his own brother Amnon. Now Amnon had in turn sexually abused Absalom's sister and his own half-sister, which is why Absalom felt the need to take justice into his own hands and take care of business. It's a mess. Talk about a broken family. These are all children of David. And up until now, David has been a very passive man in the way that he deals with his children's sin. At the beginning of chapter 14, as we saw last week, Absalom came back to Jerusalem, but it took him two years to finally come face to face with David, to finally come to the presence of David, his king, but more than his king, his father. Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel 14, verse 33, ends the chapter like this. It says, Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. And that is where chapter 14 ends. Now it seems like David is welcoming his son with a kiss, which is a good thing, Right? Usually, that is a wonderful thing. It may actually ring kind of like the, the story of the prodigal son, but as we, ha as we will see in a moment, we have no indication that at any point that David addressed his, sin, his son's sin. What we see here is not a picture of grace, but a picture of passivity, a picture of a man that is not dealing with things that he needs to deal with. 
He is not only the father, but he's also the king. And he's the one that's supposed to be dealing justice. And yet he failed at doing that with his son. So this is where we find ourselves this morning. And as we walk through our passage this morning, we will see Absalom, a usurper king, trying to, to, uh, to put himself in a position that does not belong to him. Then we will see David, a broken king, who is abdicating a position that was given to him by God himself. And lastly, we will see how our only hope falls not on any earthly king, not on a David, not on an Absalom, but in Jesus Christ, the king that came to redeem us. As we unpack the story of these two men, we will see some of the many ways in which we too are tempted to rebel against God. So with that said, would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, hungry for your word, Father, because we need you. Father, we, we thank you for your word, your revealed, inspired word, Father, because this is what nourishes our souls. Father, when we pray, would you please speak to us this morning? Father, I pray that you would give us hearts that are open to your voice. Father, hearts that are open to correction. Hearts that are welcoming of encouragement, Father. And hearts that are not just hearing the word, but actually doing the word and applying them. Father, we pray, give us wisdom as we hear these words of your holy word. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So this morning, I want us to look first at the usurper king. This is a king that puts himself in a position that does not belong to him. And in order to do that, I want us to read verses 1 through 12 of 2 Samuel. It says this, it says, After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand by the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, um, and when he said, your servant is of such, of, such, of such and such tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I wear judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to, uh, to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Verse 7, And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay, vow, pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men and, uh, from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went, into their I'm sorry, they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor, from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Church, what we see right now is a church, it's a story of conspiracy, of scheming, of evil. The chapter itself starts with the words, after this. It seems like the author is actually going to show us a contrast between what we just saw in chapter 14 and what is coming. And, and when he says, after this, 
You can almost picture the author shaking his head, saying, after this, after David welcomed him with a, with a kiss, look at what happens. Church, this is a heartbreaking story. The story of Absalom's scheming and betrayal is a heartbreaking story. He is planning on usurping the king's throne. He is planning on taking by force a throne that does not belong to him. You know, David was giving the kingdom. But Absalom is trying to take it by force. You see, just like Absalom, unfortunately, you and I will at times be tempted to sit in the throne of our hearts. You and I will be tempted to usurp the position of the king in our lives. That place of authority that belongs to God alone. Now, I like to point out a few things by which we too might be tempted uh, in our walk as, a Christian, as Christians, we might be tempted to take God's place in our lives. And so the first thing I want you to see is that we too might be tempted to live for our own glory. Chapter 15 starts with a description of Absalom. And, and in chapter 14, we have already heard about Absalom. Chapter 14 tells us that Absalom was quite the looker. He was a handsome man. So I can't really identify with that. <laughs> he looked like a king. And the thing is, he knew it. Now here, verse 1 tells us something that is very telling about Absalom. Verse 1 tells us this, that Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. You see, Absalom um, was working hard on building up his image. I think this story, if this story was taking place today, Absalom would probably call himself an influencer. You see, the guy gets himself a chariot, he gets himself a nice ride, he gets an entourage, right? He gets his boys around him, he gets 50 people to run before him. And this is the first time, and this is actually really interesting, I didn't know this, but this is actually the first time where we hear about a chariot being in Jerusalem. A chariot was not common in Jerusalem, first of all, because it wasn't functional for the type of city that it was. But you see... Every other image that we hear about chariots in the Old Testament is used to describe other nations. Absalom is shaping his image as one, um, his image as one of a king, a king like the other nations. Absalom is building up his own image. Now it is no secret that we too live in a world that is obsessed in curating our own image. Isn't that true? We want to present ourselves a certain way. And if we're not careful, we become obsessed with the way that others view us. Now, the easy thing to do here is to point at young people, right, on Instagram. It is easy to point at Instagram and TikTok and to point at how young people are obsessed with their own image. How often they check their feed, how hard they work for the likes. But the truth is that this doesn't just affect young people. This affects all of us. This is a temptation for all of us. I know that as a parent, for example, at times my desire to be a good parent might be motivated and influenced by a desire to give a certain appearance, for example. You know, at times as parents, where we are more worried about how our kids behave and how their behavior makes us look, instead of being worried about their hearts and their souls and what the Lord has called us to do in their lives. See, this temptation happens at sports practice. When you push your children to the limit, when you push them to tears because you think that their success in the basketball court 
is a monument to your parenting. You see, this happens at work. When you sacrifice time with your family, when you sacrifice your health, when you sacrifice your resources in order to keep up with others, to keep up an image. Church, this also happens at church. When you come to church and you don't build relationships, when you avoid accountability, whenever you, you refuse to confess your sin to, those, to your brothers and sisters, whenever you refuse to confess your burdens with others because you don't want people to see your weakness. This obviously happens in social media. When all you post is basically currency for the image that you portray. Another way we desire this, or, or another way that we see this desire for self-glory, is when we live for the hustle, which is a very, very popular thing. The author tells us that Absalom would rise early and stand by the gate. He intercepted people who were going to the king, and he positioned himself in a place where he was seen by others, where he could impress people with his looks and with his apparent care. We, too, like to hustle. We, too, like to position ourselves in ways that will build our name and our own image. But church, this obsession with our self-image reveals a heart that seeks self-glory instead of the glory of God. By nature, our hearts are bent towards self-glory. So church, let us be careful with our hearts. Let us watch our hearts. Let us question why it is that we do certain things. And so a good question for us to ask this morning is, am I living for my own glory or for the glory of the true king? Number two, the second way in which we might be tempted, like Absalom, we see in verses 3 to 6. Because we too will be tempted to question the goodness of the king. You see, Absalom would come to people, he would position himself at the gate, and he would talk to people, and he would you know, intercept people as they were going to the king. Last week, Mike mentioned that as children of God, we were created to reflect God's image. But what we see here is a complete opposite of that. It's a reversal of that. In verses 3 to 6, we see Absalom reflecting not the image of God, but the image of the snake in the garden. You see, just as the snake in the garden, Absalom questioned the king's goodness. He planted seeds in the heart of people that would question whether the king actually cared for them. He would see, he would see people and he would tell them, see, your claims are good and right. And basically, it made people think that the king didn't really care about them. He would tell them, of course you're right. Of course you're right. Too bad he doesn't care about it. Church, beware of those who always agree with you. Be careful with those, not only people, but philosophies or, way of, or ways of looking at your life where everything agrees with you, where everyone agrees with you. Notice that Absalom told everyone they were right. And you know what he did? He deceived them. We love hearing when we're right. We love it when people tell us, just follow your heart, man. Just do whatever you want. Beware of those who, like the snake in the garden, ask questions, not out of curiosity, but with a desire to confuse and to sow contempt in your heart. If you don't mind... I want to take a moment to address especially our young men and young women here. Those of you who are growing up in the church. Those of you who 
who are here this morning because your parents are raising you in a Christian home, can I talk to you this morning? As you grow up, there will always be those who will agree with you in every way. And let me tell you, those are not your friends. <laughs> those are not the people that you want to be surrounded with. You know, our culture will constantly tell you that what you do and what you want to do, what you think is right, make sure that you surround yourself with those who love you enough to call you out whenever you are acting foolishly, to call you out whenever you are sinning, to call you out whenever you are walking down dangerous paths. Surround yourself by those that will question you whenever you're running headfirst towards sin in the world. Now, going back to Absalom, we see him here questioning the goodness of the king. And if we're honest, we too are often, um, we are often tempted to question his goodness, aren't we? We are tempted to believe that even if God is almighty, maybe he isn't that good. Which leads me to my next point. We will be tempted to believe that we would be better kings. You see in verse 4, Absalom says this, he says, Oh, that I were the judge in the land. He's telling people, of course you're right. If I was in charge, things would be different. Which if we're honest, this is a temptation we all face. How often do we look at our lives and think, if I were in charge, things would be different. If my plans had come to fruition, I would be finally happy. If I only had this, I would be happy. How many of us have shaken our fists or God in anger when things didn't work out? When life, the life that we planned didn't go as expected? How many times have we shaken our fists at God when we didn't get that one job that we really wanted? When we lost the love of our lives? Or when the love of our lives actually never even showed up? How often do we shake our hand, our fist to God whenever we lose a loved one? When things can't get any worse and they still somehow get worse, aren't we all tempted to assume that we would be better gods? That we would be better kings in our own lives? Too often, you and I are tempted to be like Absalom. And we think we would be better kings. And church, if we're not careful, just as it happened to Absalom, we too will believe it and quickly find out that we make crummy, crummy gods. This leads me to the next point. We will be tempted to use our religion as a means to an end. You see, in verse 7, after four years of building up his image, the Bible tells us that Absalom stole people's hearts. And in verse 7, we see that one day, Absalom comes to the king and he asks if he can go back to Hebron. His excuse is that he has made a vow to God and that he has to pay it. He tells David that he will go off um, to Hebron to worship God. Now he obviously knows that David, a man after God's own heart, will not refuse him going to Hebron to worship God. But as we read, Absalom has no intention to worship. To him, this whole trip is just part of the scheme. For him, religion is a means to an end. He's going to offer sacrifice, sure. But is it to worship God? Or is it a means to an end in his own life? Dear friends, 
Beware of those who use religious language to gain our favor. What Absalom does here is something many still do today. There are those that today will speak Christianese. They will, gra- they will use our language. They will use the words that, I think, that they think we want to hear. And they will try to sway us just by using religious language. Not because they really care about God at all, but because they can use religion to build their own kingdom. Let's be careful with those people. But this is beside the point. The point here, though, is that the Christian faith is not a tool. Your faith is not a tool, and it is not a means to an end. You see, we are not Christians because Christianity will help us achieve something. We're Christians because we have submitted to the reign of the King of the universe, the God who loves us, the one who actually gives sense to our lives. Church, this this type of religiosity that uses uh, religious language of rights in order to achieve an end, as a means to an end, this is exactly what dead faith looks like. A faith that does things so that others can see it. One that gives the appearance of piety, but is only a facade. And let me tell you, God despises this type of faith. Years later, Jesus would have some harsh words for the Pharisees because of this very type of counterfeit faith. He called them hypocrites. He called them whitewashed tombs. He called them brutal vipers. He said to them, they honor, or he said of them, I'm sorry, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And he would say that their worship was in vain. Church, let us guard our hearts from this death faith. Let us guard our hearts from seeing our faith as a means to an end. You know, Absalom was actually not a believer. Even if he grew up in a godly home with a godly dad, Absalom was not a believer. He did not love God, nor did he desire to serve him. Absalom used the language of God in order to build his own kingdom. This desire to be the king of our lives is for sure the default of the unregenerate heart, I'm sorry. But just like Absalom, we Christians will at times face the temptation to usurp the throne of the king. And we will at times want to take a position that does not belong to us. We too, like David, can at times revert into living in ways that are not pleasing to the Lord. And yet, in his mercy, we will see how God will use rock bottom in a moment to quicken David's heart and to start a process of restoration. So would you read with me 2 Samuel 15, verses 13 through 17. (coughs) Here, we're going to look at a broken king, a king that abdicates the position that God has already given him. Verse 13 says this, it says, And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out, and all his household after him. And the king then uh, left ten concubines to keep the house. 
And the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at their last house. Even it's only been a couple of pages. David, the God-appointed king, a man after God's own heart, has been in a very bad place for a very long time. We know it's been at least four years of David being in sin, in passivity, and not living the king that he should be. It all started with idleness that eventually led to selfish ambition that eventually made him believe that he could take whatever he wanted and that led him to a terrible sin. And even after he repented, we saw that David continued in a pattern of passivity that will quickly catch up to him. Now, if you allow me, I'd like to take a moment to talk to the men here. Dear brothers, one of the patterns that we see over and over and over in Scripture is one of men who giving into passivity cause great pain in their families, cause great pain to their wives, to their children. From Adam to Abraham to Isaac to David, and there's many other examples in Scripture, we see in the Bible that there is a temptation particularly for us men to be passive in our leadership of our families. Time and again, this carries awful consequences. Just in the books of First and Second Samuel, we have seen the passivity of Eli, the priest. We saw the passivity of Samuel. And now we see the passivity in David. And all of them, their children walked away from the Lord. And eventually, they actually died. We saw how the passivity of these great men led to terrible consequences in the lives of their families. I know, and my wife will agree with me, that this is a huge temptation for me. By passivity, though, I don't mean laziness. You might be thinking, oh, I'm not passive, I work all day. By passivity, I don't mean laziness, because you see, you can be great at work. You can manage 200 people at work, and then get home and think, this is the time I deserve to rest, and not care for your family. Not help your wife. Not disciple your children. You see, church, as a pastor, I can easily preach to 200 people on a Sunday and be tempted not to disciple my own children. Brothers, let us make sure that we are actively leading our families well. Modeling the gospel and pointing our families to Christ. By this, I don't want to put a burden on you that you think that you have to be perfect because that is not a burden you can carry. But even when you fail, show your children how you run to Christ. Amen. Show your, your, your wife that you trust in that, in that grace that you've, that you've talked about. Run to him and repent. But now let's keep talking about David because I want to point out a couple of things. You see, David, unlike Absalom, has been given a position. God anointed him king. The temptation David, for David has never really been wanting to take the kingdom, the kingdom for himself. As a matter of fact, time and again, he refused to take the kingdom from Saul. He knew that at the right time, God would give him the kingdom. He knew that his position had been given by God himself and that he couldn't have earned it. David's temptation, you see, was radically different to Absalom's. 
His temptation was not to want too much. His temptation was to do too little with what God had given him. See, David was not trying to usurp a position. His problem was that at least for some time, he abdicated the position that God had given him. For years, David did not walk according to the position that he had before the Father. Now, in this chapter, we see David hitting rock bottom. He gets word that the hearts of other men, of the men of Israel, have gone to Absalom. And this breaks him. He immediately understands what this means. And he understands that his passivity and permissiveness towards Absalom is about to catch up with him. In verse 14, for the first time in a while, we see David being decisive. He says, arise and let us flee. He immediately instructs his people that they are leaving Jerusalem. And this is definitely a good move. And by doing this, David prevents death and he prevents bloodshed. And yet, even if this is a good idea, as you read this this section, you can feel the darkness of that day. The long-expected king of Israel is defeated and is leaving his kingdom. David is by all means abdicating his position as a king. As we will see in a minute, when he talks to his friend Ittai, um, David refers to Absalom as the king. David doesn't even see himself as a king anymore. Church, you're not a king or a queen. Neither am I. But you know what? Just like David, God has placed us in a specific position. He has given us a position before God. If you are a son of God, if you have called upon the name of Jesus for salvation, you have been given a position. One of a son, of a daughter of God. You have been adopted into his family and you are no longer his enemy. And you know what? Just like David, we at times start walking not like the position that we've been given, but we revert to who we used to be before God saved us. I know that I have before. I know that it has been my experience growing up in the church. It has been my experience that I have reverted at times to doing things that I used to do before I was a believer. I am often tempted to go back into the sin that carried me for so long, that kept me captive for so long. I know that I am tempted on a daily basis to walk like an unbeliever and to abdicate the position that I've been giving before that I've been given before the Father. And I know, I would bet that there are some of you here this morning, that though you know the Lord, that though you know the gospel, you have heard it, you can explain it, you believed it, and you have been saved. I bet that some of you today are walking not in a manner worthy of the gospel, but like you used to before you met the Lord. You're walking like those in the world. I'm not saying this out of judgment. I'm telling you this because I've been there. If you are a child of God and have called upon the name of Jesus, you have a position before the Father. Your standing before the Father is one of perfection. 
You see, at the cross, when Jesus took upon himself your sin, he gave you his righteousness. And when God sees you, he sees his perfection and not your shortcomings anymore. But you might be walking like, a, like an unbeliever at this moment. Maybe you, like David, got comfortable. And then you fell into idleness, which then led you to sin. You might be walking into this room this morning and feeling condemned because of the things that you did last night or the day before. If this is you this morning, I want you to pay attention this morning because there is good news coming for you. But before we get there, I want you to see how abdicating this position, like David, when he abdicated his position, not only as a king, but as a child of God, had terrible consequences in his life. And we too can at times abdicate our position before God. By this I don't mean that we can lose our salvation. But by this I mean that we can at times live like we used to before we were delivered by God. So here's what I want you to see. Number one, when we abdicate our position as Christians and give in to sin, we drag our friends and family into it. Notice that the effects of David's sin do not only affect him. In Psalm 51, David said, Against you alone have I sinned, which is true. But boy, did it have consequences for Bathsheba, for the baby, for his kingdom. Brothers and sisters, do not deceive yourself. Sin has a cost. And if you are walking in sin today, it will wreak havoc in the life of your family, your friends, and your circle of influence. Number two, when we abdicate as position or Christians, we give up the blessing that comes with walking in the light. Notice that in verse 23, it says this, it says, And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on the wilderness. But they passed on toward the wilderness. You see, the people of God weeping as they crossed the brook Kidron, which I want you to remember, by the way, because we will come back to this in a bit. But where are they going? Where are these broken people going? These that are weeping, where are they headed? <clears throat> Do you see it? Do you hear it? They are headed towards the very wilderness from which God had delivered them. They are walking towards the wilderness where they had been stuck for 40 years and God had brought them into the promised land. What is happening in this moment <clears throat> is a reversal of the exodus. The people of Israel are going back to the very life from which God had delivered them. Church, let me ask you this morning, isn't this us sometimes? How often do we as believers do this? In our foolishness, we start acting like the world. Peter tells us that when we do this, it's like we are so nearsighted that we are blind, having forgotten that we were cleansed from our sins. Brothers, sisters, that is a miserable place to be in because, this leads me to my next point, when we abdicate our position as Christians, we lose the joy of our salvation. Do you remember when back, uh, back when David brought the Ark of the Covenant? How he was dancing and rejoicing before the Ark of the Covenant. As he brought it into the city of David, into Jerusalem, he was dancing before the Father. He was rejoicing. He was happy. Well, now... He leaves Jerusalem, not rejoicing, but weeping, barefoot and with his head covered. 
all of which are signs of mourning and shame. Church, this is a dark day for David. It is a terrible uh, scene of heartbreak, shame, and pain, isn't it? But one day, this very man will pen the words of Psalm 51, where he asks God, Restore the joy of my salvation. Church, David has hit rock bottom. But you know what? It is here at rock bottom when David will find grace. It is here at rock bottom where God will start a process of restoration in the life of David. Not because he deserves it, but because God is good and patient and abounding in steadfast love. And this leads us to point three. And I'm going to read an extended portion and I want you to lean in. Verses 18 through 27, we'll see that grace awaits at rock bottom. Verse 18 says this, And all his servants passed by him, and all the Carathites, and all the Pelathites, and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king. Notice, here's when when he's talking about the king, he's not talking about himself, he's talking about Absalom. For you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us? Since I go, I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, As the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will be your servant. And David said to Ittai, Go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the, toward the wilderness. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the Ark of the Covenant. And they set down the Ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz and your son Jonathan. Sorry, Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. But David went up to uh, the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. And he was told, David, Ahithophel um, is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into fool- foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai, the archite, came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have, seen, as I have been your father's servant in the past, so now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? 
So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priest. Behold, their two sons are with me there. Ahima, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son, and by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. Church, here we see David hitting rock bottom, and here at rock bottom he will find grace. What does grace look like? Well, sometimes grace looks like good friends. <laughs> sometimes God's grace for us looks like faithful friends. Things begin to change with David when his friends showed up. In the time of need, David found out who his real friends were. There were those who turned their back on David in his time of need. In verse 31, a message comes to David telling him that Ahithophel, his counselor, has also betrayed him. Now what's really interesting and very unfortunate for, for uh, David is that Ahithophel was actually Bathsheba's grandpa. So as you can imagine, he had no problem turning his back on David in the time of need. David's sin, again, is biting him in the back. Thankfully, in his grace, God had sent more friends to David. In his darkest day, we see at least three types of friends that came to David's help. Number one, we see Ittai and the ministry of presence. First, we see Ittai, who was a foreigner that had followed David, even if he had no dog in this fight. David actually gave him a now. He said, hey, you don't have to follow me where I'm coming. I don't even know where I'm going. And what did he say to David? He responded like this. He said, as the Lord lives, and as my Lord the King lives, wherever my Lord the King shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. Church, this is what some might call ministry of presence. You see this? In the time of need, Ittai is in the room with David. He is there, and he will not let go. He says the similar words to that, than um, what Ruth said to his mother-in-law. I will be with you. Wherever you go, I go. And church, don't we need friends like this sometimes? God's grace sometimes looks like friends like Etai. Other times, God sends friends like Abiathar and Zadok. Here you have Abiathar and Zadok, and they're the priests who followed David carrying the Ark of the Covenant, which reminded David of God's promises to him. You see, these guys, they were the priests, and they followed David with the ark in hand, which reminded David that God had made a promise to him. Church, we all need to surround ourselves with friends that will remind us of God's promises, that will remind us of his goodness, that will remind us of his grace, and will point us back to his word. Then we have Hushai, who's another guy who was a servant of David. He comes at the nick of time. He comes whenever they're about to cross and he is mourning. He has ripped his clothes. He has ashes on his head. And he runs to David to tell him, I'm here to serve you. And David very kindly tells him, you're going to be a burden to me, man. <laughs> but you see, he then tells his friend Hushai, go back. Go back to, a to Absalom and tell him, as I served the king David, I will serve you. That's not an easy ask. He's putting his life at risk. And you know what he says? He says, yes and amen. And he heads back and he serves David by being in a very uncomfortable place, by, being, by doing something he probably didn't want to be doing. 
Church, sometimes God's grace looks like the friends that we have around us. Let us make sure that we're surrounding ourselves with good people. Let me invite you, if you're not yet part of a community group, would you consider doing that? If you hear this and this sounds foreign to you because you feel alone, would you consider joining one of our community groups? We're not perfect. But we want to be there with you whenever you hit rock bottom. Number two, God's grace draws us back to his presence. If you think about it, in the last several chapters, we have not heard of David praying or worshiping. We have heard a lot of his sin and a lot of what's going on in his life, but we had not heard about him praying or worshiping. We know from his own words that he had lost the joy of his salvation, and that pushed him away from God. But here, as he walks away in the darkest of his days, after seeing the Ark of the Covenant, we see David doing two things. First of all, we see him praying. David prays again. A very short prayer. He prays for the Lord to confuse the, the counsel of Ahithophel. But he prays. And then we see him go to the summit where God is worshipped. And we can assume that David worshipped. Let me tell you something. God welcomes that. Do not ever believe the lie of the enemy that you have to get your act together before you carry yourself back to the presence of God in prayer and worship. Do not believe the lie that you have to make yourself good before you go to God. Because you will be waiting a long time. As a child of God, you will always be welcomed in His presence. Which leads me to verses 25 and 26. And here I want you to see that God's grace is found when we trust God and not ourselves. In verses 25 and 26, we see when David finally starts seeing things clearly. His friends have shown him the ark, and he sends them back to the city. <clears throat> but I want you to read this verse with me again. Verse 25 says this, Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God again uh, back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what he seems good to him. What seems good to him. You see what's going on here? After being reminded of God's covenant, David throws himself at the mercy of God. He says, if I find favor in the eyes of the Lord. Church, let me tell you something this morning. You and I know something that David didn't quite know. We know that for those who trust the Lord, our sins have been paid for. When we repent, when we confess our sins, we do not have to wonder if we will find favor with our king because we serve a redeeming king. And this leads me to the last point, the redeeming king. Do you remember when we read that David and the people crossed the brook Kidron? Well, I told you we would come back to it. You see, there was another king that crossed the, the brook Kidron. John 18.1 tells us that Jesus crossed the brook Kidron on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane. In the darkest of his days, our king Jesus crossed the, book, the brook Kidron. The difference is that Jesus, the redeeming king, did not cross the brook Kidron because of his sin, but he crossed it because of our sin. He crossed it on his way to the cross. 
And he knew where he was going. And the Bible tells us that he laid down his life gladly. So let me ask you this morning, are you far from God? Have you, like David, abdicated your position before God and are walking as an unbeliever today? David wondered, if I find favor, dear brother, dear sister, if you repent this morning, you do not have to wonder because in the presence of God, you will find favor. Hebrews 4.15 tells us this, that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Church, in the moment of need, at rock bottom, you will find grace. And let me tell you something, he delights in giving you grace. We have a high priest, our redeeming king, that though he never sinned, he can sympathize with our weakness. And he wants to restore you today and restore the joy of your salvation. Now this moment, we will remember our redeeming king and what he did for us at the cross by partaking of the Lord's Supper. If you do not yet have the elements, please make sure that you get some. There should be at the table by the door. But what we're about to do here is a sacrament that was instituted by Christ himself so that we could celebrate and be reminded of the new covenant. You see, unlike Absalom, Jesus is the king who was, who was never reaching for glory. He was never reaching for position. He actually willingly stepped down from heaven. He came down to lay down his life for you and for me. And it is this which we celebrate this morning at this moment. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul does warn us not to take this lightly. So if you are not a follower of Christ, if you have not yet called upon the name of Jesus, I'm going to ask you to please abstain from partaking. But I'm going to invite you to please watch and listen and pay attention to what we're doing because what we're doing is a glorious thing. Paul also tells us not to participate in Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner but to examine ourselves and discern the body as we eat and drink, meaning that we really have to meditate and think about what we're doing right now. So at this moment, I will ask you to get your elements ready, and we will now respond in song. And as we do that, I want you to meditate on what this means. In a minute, we will come back and partake together. Why don't we sing to the Lord?